for an adventure. This is going to be fun. Uh, anybody have uh, anxiety just seeing that scene? Yeah, totally. Sorry. Should have had a, a trigger warning there. Um, that is, yeah, I mean, interesting to watch the rest of the video. It takes about 11 minutes on speed forward time lapse before they get uh, the home cleaned up. When a mess is that big, one of, the, one of the stumbling blocks of moving forward is where do you actually start? Right? Like when the mess is that big, where do you start? And there can be this paralysis because it feels so overwhelming emotionally. And it can feel like this is, no matter which way we sort of attack this elephant, this thing is bigger than me. We can be tempted maybe to walk away. Maybe that's why situations like that occur in our lives. There's a, a room, so to speak, in our lives that's messy and we let it go and we haven't paid attention to it. And it's gotten messier and messier. And then we go in the room and we're just like, yeah, I'm just going to close the door and pretend that's not that way and out of sight, out of mind but it's still there, right? Like it still gnaws at our hearts and at our minds. It creates this, uh, this anxiety, this tension within us. So even though it's tempting to walk away, at some point we have to have the courage to say, I gotta face this mess. And it's not gonna be easy to clean this up, but it, I need to start. And this has to be part of the wrestling that Paul has as he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. When the mess is this big, where do I start? Paul is writing to a church that he had established around 50 AD. So about 15 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He establishes it in Acts 18. It's a letter written by Paul to this church about five years after establishing it. And it comes in response to reports of essentially how messy and tangled and chaotic and disorderly, you would use the language of dysfunctional, unhealthy, the church had become. Now, in our Bibles, and I mentioned this last week, it's 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But we actually have clues in the text that uh, inform us to the fact that this is probably Paul's second letter the Corinthians has probably been a bunch of correspondences because in chapter five, he references in the letter that I had sent you and he mentioned something that hasn't occurred yet in first Corinthians. So first Corinthians is probably historically the second letter to Corinthians and second Corinthians is historically probably the fourth. I know, I know that gets a little bit confusing, but it's still the first and second letter from Paul that God has saved and preserved in the canon of scripture and history. And again, it's a response to this mess within the Corinthian church. And it reveals these tension points. It reveals these points where the church has begun to fracture in different ways and move in different directions. And they're not even necessarily asking for Paul's help. Maybe some of them are, some of them aren't. Some of them think they're, they're fine. And so you get these clues as the letter unfolds that Paul is trying to figure out how to come at this multi-headed monster, this huge mess, and really trying to figure out how do we get clear on these things? How do I help this church? Because he wasn't there to help them. And again, there's a lot of grace here because it shows us there's never, never has been a perfect church, never will be a perfect church. 
And it's also really helpful for us because throughout the, throughout the letter, Paul references their former way of life. And he never talks about their former way of life in Judaism, which means we know this letter was written predominantly to people who weren't Jewish, hadn't grown up with a, a Jewish worldview, had grown up with a Corinthian worldview, had come to faith, and now we're trying to rearrange and disentangle their own ideas around this is how we're supposed to live, right? And in some ways, Paul will say, yeah, that, that totally is in with, alignment with the gospel. And in other ways, you actually have to do a complete 180. And they were confused. And they were making some really self-destructive, divisive, dis, um, uh, taking different actions that were really causing a lot of chaos within their church and to those around them. Let me just quickly uh, review the fact that we are moving through this series um, expositionally, which means we are moving through it starting at the start of the book and moving all the way through it. And that's different than moving through a series topically where we might look at a topic and then say, hey, uh, what are six verses? And we'll do six weeks around these six verses that support this idea, the topic of, um, again, like finances like we did. And we talked a little bit last week about the advantages of doing an expositional series where we move through the text at a steady state from start to the end. And I'm wondering if anyone wants to share just quickly one thing that they remember from last week, or if you're plugging in now, thinking through what might be the advantage of doing a series where we are going through the entire book as opposed to just landing in certain parts and extracting biblical truths. What would be the advantage of going through the whole thing? Either that we talked about last week or that you've thought about in the seven days prior since. You get a lot more context. Very good. And context is really important, especially when it comes to not misapplying certain texts. If you pull a text out and read it and say, oh, I bet you you're supposed to apply it this way, um, we might misapply that. And we might actually injure ourselves or someone else doing that. And then we say, oh, well, I don't really trust the Bible. And it's like, well, no, but you didn't do the homework around what comes before that text, what sets it up. Maybe there's an application a, a chapter later that explains how to apply it. We want to make sure that we understand how to get the scripture in its context so that we can apply it better. Pauline, you had your hand up. It's learning, yeah. And, and learning can happen in topical series because we're learning about a topic and pulling the Bible into it. But this is a little bit different. This is kind of starting with scripture and then allowing it to touch on topics that we wouldn't anticipate. We might be surprised by that the verses that we're looking at this morning, I doubt many of us would be um, really inclined to take a week or two or maybe even a whole day and study them. But they're really rich. We might be tempted to just sort of gloss over them and move on to stuff that feels more relevant to us. So we can learn different things from God's word by allowing God's word to lead us instead of maybe the preference of a pastor or a topic. And again, I don't want to diminish topical teaching. I'm just saying there are some really distinct advantages to expositional teaching. We talked about digging deeper. How do we go into the series such that we're not just kind of sleepwalking through it? What are, what's one or two ways that we can go through this series so that we're actually kind of digging in in a secondary level beyond just showing up and, and, and listening intently. 
Marvin. Oh, yeah, awesome. Praying about what we're learning, praying the text of what we're learning. Use the, using the text each week to say, I'm going to pray whatever words or themes steam, uh, stand out to me. Absolutely awesome way to both meditate and pray on the Word of God, especially, again, in sections of the Bible that we would just maybe uh, avoid or think, I don't even know how to pray with this. But then we try it and we're like, oh, it's actually pretty powerful. Excellent. Anything else? Dig, digging deeper? Things that we can do? Yeah, right. Commentaries, yeah. I think, Lydia, you mentioned commentaries last week, right? I think so. Um, looking at secondary sources, pe people who are experts in these books, uh, in the language, in the context, and seeing how they encourage the church to apply it. Um, getting together in a small group kind of environment. If small groups don't work for you. Start a three-to-one group, a group of three people that meet for two hours once a month. And say, we're going to meet once a month and spend two hours saying, what has been the most challenging or helpful thing that I learned this month from this series? Just pull two other people around you and say, let's set a date Saturday morning, go for a walk and talk and just explore what God's putting on our heart. Really, really powerful ways to do that. Let's remind ourselves a few things about Corinth that are very, very important for setting context. This is going to really help you, not just today, but as the series unfolds, to understand, oh, this is why the Spirit through Paul is um, bringing certain things uh, to the Corinthians' attention in the way that um, it's being done. It's a very influential city, Corinth, because of its location in Greece, major port city, lots of money. Uh, it's an entertainment uh, center. It's a center of commerce. It's a center of athletics, the sports of the day. It's a center of religion and temples. And it's a center of competing philosophies and worldview. In Acts 17, actually, just go back to the map for a second, uh, Bobby Joe. So Athens is just a little east of Corinth. In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. And we read about some of the things that Paul does in Athens before he goes to Corinth. And one of the things he does is he goes to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was a place where Stoics and, or, or, sorry, um, Sophists and kind of, um, well, they would think of themselves as religious teachers. We might think of them more as uh, philosophers. And there were these wise people who would teach what Acts 17 says, the latest ideas. It was a culture that really prized being enlightened and progressive, the latest cutting-edge, bleeding-edge ideas. We debate those, and Paul had gone there, and then he gets kind of kicked out of Athens, and he goes to Corinth next. Corinth had that same culture of people seeking wisdom. What does it mean to live a wise life? What does it mean to live a life of real knowledge? What does it mean to live a life that is truly and deeply spiritual? You're going to have that come up in Corinthians again and again. What does it mean to live with power? What does it mean to be a mighty um, powerfully spiritual person in this world. There was a lot of different worldviews and philosophies that were at play within Corinth and that whole world at the time. And part of why Paul settles here for a year and a half in a second missionary journey is because he wants to have 
the Christian faith, the gospel, intersect with these ideas and establish um, churches who can contend with these ideas. It's a city that also has a reputation. The reputation of Corinth precedes it. In fact, among other pagan, non-Christian nations, obviously there were Christian nations at that time, among the other pagan nations, there was a verb, uh, which, um, I forget the, the Greek word, but it's pretty close, but in English it's to Corinthianize. You can actually still look that up. You can Google it and say Corinthianize. It's a verb to live like a Corinthian. And this is the way other um, city-states and other Roman colonies talked about people who lived in Corinth. And it referred to, and here's an old-school word, it referred to the licentious living of those who lived in Corinth. And licentious really just means without any moral restraint, especially in the area of sexuality and how one expresses their sexuality. So, in a pagan, non-Christian world, most of the pagans looked at how Corinthians lived and it was so dominatingly given over to self-serving desires that they said, there's actually a distinction. They've kind of got their own little world happening there. And if you go to Corinth, you better be prepared to live like a Corinthian. So really, really interesting. This is a intense and intensely, um, in many ways, anti-God, and what we would think of anything in the approach in the realm of um, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-life culture. And one of the symbols of that was the temple of Aphrodite. And I just want to show a quick video that um, gives you a reconstruction of that temple and uh, part of its prominence. The historian Strabo relays that the Temple of Aphrodite was one of Corinth's most famous landmarks. This was largely due to the temple's female patrons. These Hittirae, as they were called, were donated to the goddess by both men and women. According to Strabo, the Temple of Aphrodite contributed greatly to Corinth's wealth. The Hittirae were the temple's main attraction, and many visitors came to Corinth in search of their company for which they spent frequently and frivolously. Um, Roman historians say that the uh, Temple of Aphrodite had 1,000 hetairai. Um, historians will, will debate whether or not that's an exaggeration, whether that number is meant to be understood symbolically. Um, in some ways, but it was a massive source of both economic prosperity for the temple, and the temple of Aphrodite was placed on the Acrocorn, which was an elevated place. So among other gods, the temple, where you were invited through sexual connection with the Tyri, um, male and female, by the way, um, was a way that you uh, elevated the goddess of sexuality, love, and beauty. And because that temple was elevated in the ancient world, kind of the higher the temple, 
the greater the hierarchy of importance to a city. So when you're approaching Corinth, one of the things you would see before anything else is that you see the Acro Corinth and the temple of uh, Aphrodite upon it. And so it's in this kind of context to people who have only ever known this way of living have been raised in this kind of culture and for whom this kind of culture is absolutely seen as true and beautiful and good and moral and right and the way things are, Paul comes with a message that has at the center the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, this gospel which now opens up a new way to live. So that helps us a little bit get into the frame of mind of how challenging it was to first of all plant here and then five years later to realize he has to write a letter because of so much chaos happening within the church. But it's kind of understandable because these were people who had sincerely come to faith but their old habits of heart, soul, mind, and strength were still holding on. And those old habits were bringing all kinds of destruction into the church, into their witness. So if we go to the next slide, so that last slide said Temple of Athena, but it was Aphrodite, it slipped there. Um, this is a list of all the issues Paul addresses in this first letter to the Corinthians. These are out of order. Don't look ahead in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, close your Bibles. Don't cheat. This is, this is out of order. Everything from believers filing lawsuits against each other, uh, really significant issues with sexual immorality, um, massive misunderstandings around uh, resurrection, what kingdom sexuality looks like, marriage and divorce, Christian love. What, um, what does it mean to be a prominent uh, person of high status within God's kingdom? What does it mean to have authority in God's kingdom? Different factions and divisions that were built around different, at the time, early Christian leaders and the church rallying around certain people that say, oh, I'm actually a follower of this person. Why well, I follow Jesus? Why well, I actually follow Peter? I follow Paul. So this is all of the issues at play. When Paul gets his report, he writes 1 Corinthians in response to this. Now, if you're a pastor, you got to write this letter and all of these issues are in play. It's interesting to consider where you might start and why. This room, this church is a mess. Where do we start? Are you going to start with the resurrection? Are you going to start with sexuality? Are you going to start with what does it mean to love as a Christian? Are you going to start with the abuses around the Lord's Supper? Just think about that honestly. Again, maybe you know what's coming next in the letter, but just sort of hold that and think through. You've got to start somewhere. Where are you going to start? And why would you start there? Would anyone be so bold as to share where they would start and why they would start there? And I say this to say, I mean, there's kind of like an obvious right answer. <laughs> but also, I think, you, I think a case could be made for almost any of you. So this isn't like a gotcha question. Paul? Status and authority of God's kingdom. And why would you say that would that would be a place that it would feel intuitive for you to start there? Because 
Good. So that's going to establish who's in charge, who they should be listening to. Obviously, if this is going on, there's all kinds of people that they're listening to. They're pulling them in directions. Yeah, that would be a, a totally valid, solid place to start. Anyone else? Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, absolutely. In that culture, they would have had all kinds of very reinforced understandings of what love is. Uh, brotherly love, erotic love, um, what agape love even was. And so maybe that becomes the place where you say, okay, we got to start here because out of this flows an understanding of all these other things. Yeah, love would be a very natural place to start. Again, I think you could make a case for any of these being a natural place to start. What's interesting to me is the non-intuitive place, at least for me, where Paul actually does start. Uh, if you have your Bibles closed, you can reopen your Bibles. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first nine verses. We'll cover the first three that we looked at last week. But we'll move into the first nine here. And remember the question that on some level would have been on Paul's heart, that he would have probably spent who knows how much time praying and agonizing over in prayer. God, when the mess is this big in the church, where do I start? Where do I start to make things right? He says, Paul, called to, be an called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Very encouraging, Marlene, to hear for you. It was intuitive to move into thankfulness. I would not walk into a room of one of my kids, or if I walked into this church, maybe after an event, and the whole thing was just blown to bits, my first impulse would not be to lead with, I thank God for you. What? You know what I see when I see this mess? I think, hashtag blessed, oh my heart. Oh, I just need to, I just, I just need to take a moment because I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude. And that's actually where Paul starts. And again, this is a second letter. It has probably been preceded. And he's going to get to some points where he's going to have to push on them in ways that are uncomfortable. But he starts by saying, I thank my God for you. And then he 
emphasizes something in those first nine verses again and again and again and again and again and again. And I, I think it's important to notice because I didn't even notice it until a commentary, uh, to Ray and Lydia's point, uh, took what was hidden in plain sight and kind of brought it out. And I was like, oh yeah, that's actually pretty important. What is something that you notice comes up again and again and again in these first nine verses of First Corinthians? Yeah, Jesus or Christ is actually mentioned nine times in those first nine verses. Paul comes back to Jesus again and again and again and again. He frames everything his thankfulness, what Jesus has done for this church as part of them. Uh, sorry, he frames everything around this is about Jesus. And I want to start with Jesus. And that's really, really interesting. Because when you see some of the things on that list, some of the mess, when you look at the mess in your own life, when you see the mess in other people's lives, it can be very tempting as a Christian to think, where I need to go to first is cleaning things up, the behaviors. I'm doing this, it's wrong, I need to stop doing that, I need to try better, uh, I need to do better, try harder. And Paul, I mean, in an ingenious way by God's Spirit, says, I actually don't want to address all the, all the issues that you have. The issues that you have are coming from a deeper source, and I don't just want to say, Get this part of your sexuality in order. Get this part of how you handle money in order. Get this part of your marriage in order. Get this part of your recreation in order. Get this part of how you do commerce in order. How you interact with um, unbelievers in your life in order. He doesn't start with moralism. He actually starts with Jesus. And he does that very specifically. Notice what he says in verse 9. There's two things that Paul says in these first nine verses. Every Christian, the Christian in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, but everybody, everybody is called to as a Christian. What are the two things he says? One's in verse 9, and one's in verse 2. Christians are called to what? To, okay, we'll go to verse 9 first. To fellowship with who? With Christ. And that flows out of and flows into and informs the first calling, which is what? In verse 2. Called to live a holy life, a life separated, devoted to God. What does it mean to live a holy life as a Christian? Well, it starts with understanding the core of my faith isn't about right living, right ideas, getting all those things in order and then executing them. It's actually learning to live in fellowship, in deep connection. Another word that would be used is communion with Jesus. And I think that's amazingly instructive for us, for me. Because again, we can leapfrog into got all these issues, this huge mess in this area of my life, or maybe my whole life, or in our church or in our families, where do we start? We need to recenter on Jesus. We need to come back to Jesus. And we need to say, my central calling is to be connected to Jesus. And I love that Paul starts that, starts there. That he doesn't say, yeah, Christianity is kind of like a self-help project. 
got to fix these things. And then if you fix these things, then, then you'll be sanctified. What is the tense of um, the verb sanctify in, um, in verse uh, 1 and 2? Sorry, verse 2. Is sanctified present tense? Is it future tense or past tense? It's past tense. You have been selected. You have been separated. You have been made holy. You have been made righteous in Christ. And now you need to live into that identity. You've been made. Something's already happened to you. God has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Now you live out of that identity. His message isn't, look at the mess you've made. You guys got to clean this up. And maybe if you cleaned it up, we'll see. But maybe you'd have access to fellowship with God. See, this is part of the good news of Christianity. And this is what separates Christianity from every other, I would argue, world religion, and even worldview, which is essentially religion says, if I figure out the right way of behaving, the right way of speaking, the right way of acting, the right rituals, if I conform to a certain standard, and I excel in that, and I become excellent, that I will have access to enlightenment, salvation, God, the gods, eternal life. And Christianity says no. That's not, that's not the way. You can't actually disentangle. You can't clean up your own mess. Not to the degree that the mess is set in your life. Jesus has come, and something special has happened in his life and death and resurrection. It's what we call the gospel. The central through line of Christianity. That through his incarnation, manger, cross, crown, these three symbols that kind of hold the gospel together. Jesus' life. God comes among us. He dies for us. He rises from the dead in order that we might be saved from sin's power and sin's penalty. What that means is Christianity is more than just, oh, if I believe certain things, then my sins will be forgiven and I'll go to heaven. That's a part of it. But what God has done in and through Jesus opens up an entirely new way of thinking about life. And at its heart, it opens up an entirely new way of living from a place of connection with God. So instead of trying to live in order to attain the connection, maybe if I do enough of these things, or avoid enough of those things, then God will love me, God will accept me, God will bless me. The gospel says, all of that has been taken care of. You have been sanctified. You've been set apart. Now live from that place of communion and fellowship with Jesus. That is a message that we need to hear again and again and again. Because in different ways, we're all tempted to say, no, i got to clean myself up, and then I'll present myself to God, and then God will say, well done, uh, you now have access to me. It's like, no, it's the other way around. A loving parent affirms to their child, I love you. And when we need to f figure out this mess that has been made, we're not going to ignore the mess, but we start with saying, I love you. I'm thankful for you. I'm with you in this. I want to help. This mess doesn't threaten our relationship. And actually, because of our relationship, we're going to work together to clean this up. And that's what Paul wants these Corinthians to hear. Not a message of religion. Are you kidding me? Look at all these. You guys have all these issues? Shame on you. Get your house in order, and then maybe God will bless you. He's like, no, you have so much knowledge, so much wisdom. You've already been blessed with all these gifts. 
You've been called into fellowship with Jesus. And now he's going to go forward and say, that's why these ways of living don't fit you anymore. They just don't fit. Because they're not who you are anymore. When the mess is this big in our lives, where do we start? We always start with a reminder that we are called into fellowship with Jesus. It has to begin and end with Jesus. Because it's very possible to try and live a Christian life by leapfrogging over fellowship with Jesus and just acting like a Christian, talking like a Christian, doing things we see other Christians doing, mimicking other people's uh, Christianity. But if it doesn't come from a place of real heart surrender and a personal sense of like, God, I need you. I want to grow in a relationship with you. I don't even know what that means totally, but I want to learn. I don't want to just be religious. I don't want to just live by a creed or a code or go through every day striving to um, um, please you in a, in, a, in a religious, moralistic sense. I want to live a life with you and a life that pleases you because I'm connected to you. And I don't want to break your heart. I don't want to live in to the fullness of what you have for me. Do you guys see the difference there? I mean, it's very subtle, but it's, 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 it's a very important difference. And the gospel opens up a different way of being in the world. And so as you move into these first few chapters, and as Paul begins to press on places where the Corinthians need to change and grow, I want us to hear it as first about calling them back into fellowship with Jesus. Let's pray.